Smoke Signals podcast, whatever time of day, whatever day it is you happen to be listening. This is the recording for the week of Thanksgiving. So if you're listening while you're traveling, we hope you're ready for some good Indian slash baseball content while you're on the road to uh, visit some family and eat some turkey. Hope you have a good Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Justin Lana, joined by Michael Kuva again. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Justin. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Excited to talk some Indians baseball or just some baseball in general. There hasn't been a ton of news to talk about, but there's enough things that have been going on. We wanted to get a podcast out this week going into the holiday week just to get some Indians talk out there and and get something up before the winter meetings start because uh, we probably won't do one next week. And then the week after that is the start of the winter meetings. So let's cover a little bit of news uh, before that happens. The Obviously, the most relevant news was the Indians finally uh, announced their 40-man roster moves, which all teams were required to do last week um, ahead of the Rule 5 draft. So the Indians added uh, two no-doubt names, Daniel Johnson uh, and Tristan McKenzie, who were both eligible for for the Rule 5 draft. Uh, Scott Boss was added, which wasn't really a surprise, but maybe a little bit lesser chance of being added than Johnson and McKenzie, who we all thought were locks. Uh, Nick Goody was designated for assignment to make room. Uh, the Indians roster is full at 40 right now. Um, any surprises, Michael, on your end for those moves? Not in terms of the people that were added. I, I wasn't quite sure if Moss would get put on or not. I know that there was a lot of people that felt he would be. I, I kind of was 50-50 on it, but it, it's not a, a super big shocker that he was there. Um, I was a little bit surprised initially that Goody got DFA'd. I thought that they really liked what he was able to do. I know he struggled on the front end and back end of his season last year, but there were some times where he seemed like a very valuable reliever, you know, out of the pen, right-handed arm, you know, good fastball slider combo. But I think it's just a numbers game at this point. It's pretty, I don't want to say easy, but it's um, you can find fastball slider relievers for cheaper than what Goody might make in arbitration. And it's, you know, unfortunate for him, um, you know, maybe if his market isn't great, you know, this uh, this winter that he could be back on some type of minor league, you know, invite to spring training type deal. But um, in terms of Johnson, McKenzie, Moss, not a whole lot that I was surprised by. Is there anything that surprised you? Did you think that maybe – Jared Robinson or, or one of the other guys that was on the bubble uh, would we get put on potentially that, that didn't end up getting put on? I wasn't really sure. I kind of thought maybe Robinson had a chance, but the Indians are so heavy on pitching right now, and um, they're so heavy on even relievers. So I guess it's not really a surprise. I thought Moss was obviously the third most obvious choice on that list. Um, I think, obviously, like you said, the most, big, the most surprising move was Goody being DFA'd. I uh, had a 3.54 ERA and a 4.62 FIP, which obviously isn't great, and it was going to make projected 1.1 million in arbitration. I guess the Indians felt like uh, since Goody was out of options, and they had guys like Hunter Wood and Phil Maton and James Karinchak, who all were going to come cheaper this year, that they were better options to stay in the 40-man roster. And the only one that's out of options out of those guys is Hunter Wood, so you can bet that he'll be year unless the Indians uh, make an upgrade to that position in the offseason, which I think they might. There's still a chance they could resign Tyler Clifford and make some moves elsewhere. But I guess I'm not too surprised by Goody. He did have a rough second half. Uh, 
there was like a stretch there in the middle of the season where he was maybe their most dependable reliever behind Brad Hand. You know, they were going to him as a setup guy, and he kind of recaptured what made him so good in, in 2017 before the injury. But, you know, he was – I think they designated him for assignment in last year, or he was off the 40-man roster last winter, and they had to re-add him. I'm not sure if that's 100% accurate, but he was not good in Columbus before they called him back up, and then – uh, I don't know if they called him back up because they needed an arm, and he ended up being pretty good for a while. But, uh, boy, he did all that this year with a 245 uh, average on balls in play. I didn't realize how favorable his average on balls in play was. So uh, maybe the Indians saw that as a sign and figured they could save a million dollars to and put it towards whoever else is on the roster. That's probably the way to go, although I probably would have maybe DFA'd uh, Maton or, or Hunter Wood, but they seem to like those guys. Yeah, I, I mean, it comes down to, I, even though it seems, I know we have plenty of uh, Dolans or cheap uh, people that, you know, are out there on Twitter and, and in, in Cleveland, but, you know, where you can save money on the fringes, that'll only help small market teams. And if they really didn't feel like Goody was worth the extra $700,000 um, and you have comparable guys with better metrics or maybe better, you know, more promising um you know, arsenal and whatnot ability to, to, you know, prevent runs better than Goody. And it made sense. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, we feel good about Goody. It comes down to, you, you know, the names, sometimes you get attached to the names um, and, and when they're really not quite as good as you think they are. And I think um, I like that, you know, they were, have other guys on the 40 men right now that could fill in for him. And it's unfortunate. I liked, I liked some of the things he brought to the table, but, not, not super surprised that he's, he's gone. And like you said, you could definitely see uh, a reunion with Tyler Clippard um, depending on what his price tag is, you know, going into this, in this winter. But I, I think their bullpen's pretty much in a good place with who they already have coming up and, and who's kind of on the fringes in, in AAA and in AA right now. Yeah. I mean, 1.1 million seems kind of petty when you're talking about pro sports, especially baseball, but I guess if you're going to, save that somewhere this is the way to do it because it's not like you know Goody pitched a great season it wasn't like he was as good as he was in 2017 you have other options so if you're going to find a way to save money elsewhere and hopefully you know apply that to the roster then that's maybe the one place they could afford to do it and the other guys that weren't added uh that we noted last time we talked was Kai Tom uh Luis Oviedo is also on that list so it's Jose Fermin Cam Hill and Jared Robinson, we just talked about uh, Baseball America did have Oviedo and Fermin as guys to watch going to the Rule 5 draft, which I found interesting because uh, Fermin had a lot of injury issues last year. Um, had injury issues in 2018 as well when he kind of had his, I don't want to say breakout, but when he kind of finally emerged onto the scene as a prospect uh, for most people. And then Fermin, obviously, a little more contact-oriented, which Baseball America said made him um, a better fit to stick on a, a 26 man roster than your average uh, class A shortstop. But I don't know. I still find it very hard to believe that either team, any, any team out there is going to try to hide one of these guys on a major league roster. And um, I don't, there's no way to find these lists. I think JJ Cooper, Baseball America, wrote back to me on Twitter and said um, each team can protect 38 more players on a triple A AAA list and you can't find those looks publicly. So we have no idea if for me and Oviedo are on that, you know, extra set of 38 players that are protected, but I, I'd imagine at least for me is maybe Oviedo. Um, 
that that's kind of a weird thing that you can't find a list, but I find it hard to believe that either of those two guys have a real shot to stick. Uh, what is it? 180 days, I think. On yeah, someone's I think roster. it's half the season pretty much, right? I, I think it's, what is it like? I think it's half the season. So whatever the numbers on that would be, but yeah, I find it hard to believe too. I don't see why even like a really bad, like rebuilding team, like there's really no reason. It's not like, I mean, Oviedo was hurt last year. There's some concerns about the durability. He's a big, he's a big guy. He's got easy velo, but you know, the way that his 2019 season went was a little concerning. And for me, I, I think he's starting to become, you know, better known among prospects, you know, prospect analysts around, around the, the States here, but I don't see why someone would take him when they could probably find a contact oriented, you know, second baseman that's in triple a or a free agent right now. I, I don't, I find it hard to believe if somebody took them kudos to them for taking a shot, but I don't see how that would make any sense, especially for as you know, they're in low a, I mean, they're very far away from uh, making an impact for me. His skill set probably is more conducive to a quicker uh, ascension to the bigs just because of, the, the contact and he's, and he's a pretty solid defender, a good base runner. So there's, there's something to be said about that, but I think this is probably one year too early for him. And even though, uh, like you said, we can't see the, the triple a uh, protected rosters, a 38, 30 man roster. I, I would assume that Oviedo and Fermin are both on that. Um, but that's just personally. And in terms of who is going to get selected, I think we talked about this the last time, but uh, Kai Tom seems like just an obvious answer. Um, you know, for a, for a bad team that's looking for some some corner outfield help, maybe even potentially can slide over to center. It's worth it to see what you have in him, and unfortunately, there's just not room for him on the Indians' 40 men right now, based off of what we have um, in the upper levels of the minors. A lot of high floor guys, very similar to Tom, so he'll probably get squeezed out, and I, I would see him getting taken. Um, you know, coming in the Rule Five draft here in the next three, two, three weeks. Yeah, he's kind of the most average just because of where he is in his career and the kind of season he had, and if there's a team out there that's really desperate for outfield help and, and see something interesting there. But even, even with Tom, I don't know if it's more than a 50, 50 shot, just because I don't, I don't know the make of both most teams rosters to know if, if they're in a position to take that, that risk or not. I mean, it seems like someone like Detroit should really take a, a risk on, on someone like that because their outfield's been bad. And uh, I'm not sure who else out there, but you know, there's a, there's a good chance. And I, I honestly kind of hope Tom does just to, to have a chance because I don't know if he's going to get one here with the log jam they have, even though it isn't the world's best, most talented log jam of outfielders, but no, it doesn't seem like definitely not. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, the other move was an interesting one. I thought, uh, I know it might've kind of passed the radar for most people. And uh, I know you saw it. And I think uh, there were some people on Twitter who, who talked about the move a little bit, who thought it was interesting. And that was uh, Mark Mathias being traded to the Brewers. Matthias was Rule 5 eligible in 2018. The Indians didn't add him. They didn't get selected. And they may have felt that he was going to be selected this year by somebody. He did have a decent year in uh, AAA, bounce between second and third base. They moved to Milwaukee for 18-year-old catcher Andres Melendez. Sorry, I couldn't say his last name. Um, 18-year-old catcher who hasn't played above rookie ball yet, but Bangraps has a 40 future value on him. Uh, right now, kind of seems like a catch and throw rece- uh, receiver who has good contact skills and and maybe some on base abilities that make him interesting going forward. And for me, I think the most interesting part is that you know we talked last time about all the deals the Indians made last year where they were 
moving, you know, long-term guys like Gianti Turner and, and I'm going to forget some of the names in that we just talked about them two weeks ago. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they move those guys to get guys like Oscar Mercado and Chi Wei Hu and uh, some other guys in the Indians roster and, and Jordan Luplo, uh, Tanash Thomas was one of them. I mean, I remember, you know, they were moving lower level guys for, you know, higher floor help in 2018 or 2019 and beyond. And now they made a move where maybe Mark Mathias is kind of a high floor guy who could have helped in 2020. Instead, they felt like they didn't have room for him on the 40 man roster and he would have been taken. So they moved him to Milwaukee and they got 18 year old catcher who's got some really intriguing skills. And they kind of refilled the pipeline with, you know, a catcher, which they don't have a ton of in the system. I think beyond Bo Naylor, the system's pretty thin. I know there's Yanir Diaz, but um, Melendez is an interesting guy. Yeah, I, I like I like the point about the the thin thinness of our catching corpse in the minors right now. I mean, you have there's names, there's recognizable names: Mike Rivera, Sicknar, Lufstock. Um, I'm not a huge Logan Ice fan I, i'm not that you know i hope he does well but i i don't i've never seen anything out of him that really even makes me feel like he's going to be a competent backup catcher i mean m- maybe um on like a on a subpar team but probably not on a on a contending team um so it, it was a nice job by them to take a guy they knew was going to be squeezed out and use that you know to their advantage to uh, send that you know send them to a team like the brewers who really needed some depth uh, in their in their, on their 40 man roster and Matthias fits perfectly well for them. Um, Melendez, I, I read you referenced fan graphs. Uh, Eric Longenhagen said that a few scouts texted him and were cursing Cleveland for poaching him from the Brewers. So that's always <laughs> nice to read when you see, when you see something like that, because it kind of reinforces the idea that the, the Indians really do have a plan and they know kind of the route that they want to go. Um, but yeah, like you said, I mean, seem, you know, athletic catch and throw guy contact oriented approach. They, they project him as a backup. That's super valuable for a guy you were probably going to lose anyways. Um, it's always nice to get some assets back in return. So I, I was happy about that. And, you know, I, I'm going to ha- have to, uh, keep, you know, attention on him this year because I haven't obviously watched a lot of them, but, um, nice job by the Indians and, and reinforcing the catching depths in the minors for, through this deal. Yeah, that's the most interesting part to me, like I said, is just how the Indians continue to fill the top and bottom of the roster and how they go about it differently. And it's different than kind of what they did a year ago, you know, but they always kind of know where they're at roster-wise, no matter if it's, you know, the Arizona Rookie League or if it's, you know, the Major Leagues AAA. They always kind of know how to add value in certain areas and, and guys that they feel like are going to help them, whether it's far away or, or soon – um, and those sneaky moves, they always seem to make those those trades you don't think of. Like, I mean, a year ago, nobody thought Oscar Mercado was going to be, you know, a huge deal, you know, last right. July. And he winds up, you know, being in the rookie of the year race until the end of the year and had a huge success with them. Um, those are just the kind of moves the Indians tend to excel at. And uh, I know they haven't had a ton of those wins on the hitting side of things, something more pitching. Obviously, Mercado was, you know, winning that side of things. But maybe Melendez... You no, know, he comes more. He's only 18, and who knows what else is in the tank and what they – I mean, the Indians have done a decent job developing catching. They got Gomes and made him a lot better. Uh, they developed Perez. Um, Eric Haas is interesting. Uh, they do have good catching coaches in the minor leagues, so who knows if he becomes more. But uh, just how the Indians kind of turn out both sides of their roster, I think, is a really interesting approach to roster building overall that I know they have to do because of their market size and, and how they operate. But um, 
I think they just do a really good job of that strategy and finding value at the margins when they make these sorts of moves. And especially, like you said, knowing when they're probably not going to have Matthias in the system in 2019, you might as well, or 2020, you might as well get something for him while you still have on the roster. Yeah. And, and like you said, that's, that's the way that, you know, a team like, like the Indians, the small market teams really keep themselves relevant and, and keep uh, replenishing the system, making sure that they have guys at every level that, they feel you're more than just organizational guys, the guys that actually might have some impact. So um, definitely like the deal and, um, you know, looking forward to, to keeping up on, on Melendez this coming season and, and see how he does. I'm not sure what level he's going to start at. I, I know they said he was in rookie ball last year. So, you know, and he, and he struggled a little bit statistically, but he was also very young. So I don't know if they'll start him out in Arizona and then move him up to Mahoning Valley or uh, if they'll be a little bit more aggressive with them. Just kind of depends on what, where they assess him at in, in spring training. And they should have an op. They should have an opening in Mahoning Valley if Diaz and uh, Brian and Lavastida wind up in Lake County to start the year. The only thing I want right, to bring up they too, probably will. Yeah, the only thing I wanted to bring up too. I didn't or didn't write this down, but somebody brought it up to me the other day, and I just thought of it again with the add of Scott Moss and McKenzie. Uh, the Indians are up to thirteen starting pitchers in their forty-man roster. If you include, obviously. Uh, whatever the starting five is going to be, Adam Pluck goes out of options, though I'm assuming he'll be here next year. And it seems like I'm unlikely, given what they just went through, they would DFA him or or try to pass him through waivers. I think he might get claimed by a team that needs pitching. Um, but when you consider now that um, Aaron Savali is on the roster, you have Rodriguez, Moss, McKenzie, Logan Allen, the Indians are the 13 starting pitchers on their 40-man roster, and I think that's really interesting to look at going into the winter meetings or just the offseason in general because it makes you feel like there might be a trade coming because as, as bad as the year they had health-wise with their starting pitchers, 13 seems like an awful lot, especially when you consider that Allen's already made his major league debut and Moss and McKenzie aren't far behind. Everybody else in that list besides Tenches um, has already been in the majors as well. So I kind of wonder if maybe, and not necessarily, you know, a Corey Kluber or, you know, whoever else they might consider trading um, might have value. But, like, even if it is Adam Plutko because he's out of options or, you know, a Scott Moss or anybody else, I know they find Moss interesting, but they didn't want to lose him for nothing and can go out and trade him uh, in the offseason. But it just kind of makes me think that it seems hard they're going to finish the offseason with 13 starting pitchers taking up 40 man roster spots. That seems like an awful lot. That is a lot. And, and uh, we actually, we kind of started uh, when we were going through, you know, the outline of what we want to talk about today, you, you put in there something about Clevenger and Bieber, you know, potentially being uh, at least a, a Yankees, you know, uh, newspaper was talking about the Yankees need to trade for one of those guys. And um, as we saw last year, the depth is important to have, uh, but there are, plenty of trade assets and obviously pitching is so important nowadays that I think a guy, I think Plucko, I, I personally think Plucko will, will be squeezed out. I think he will end up getting traded for something. I don't think they'll DFA him. It'll be hard, you know, with a team um, knowing that the Indians have no leverage in the situation. So we might not get, you know, I don't know what Plucko's value would be in, in a trade. I mean, He's a pretty serviceable, like sixth, seventh man in a rotation can probably eat some innings for you in the event of a, an injury, but for the most part, isn't going to win you games. Um, so I don't know what a team that's thin with their pitching depth depth would pay for that, but 
you could definitely get a guy. I mean, we got, you know, an interesting catcher in Melendez for Matthias. I think Pletko might get something like that as well. Who, a lower level guy who's got some upside, not a, obviously a star or even probably a, an average uh, regular, but someone who's a 40, you know, maybe could be, become a 45 that could help, um, you know, so, someone that we could develop in the minors. So um, I, I think that's interesting too. I personally would like to see them ascertain what the value is for some of these guys, whether it's Plesak or Pletko, or I think Savali is probably safe. I think a, a dark horse name to watch out for because of his age and some of the uh, max effort, way that he throws is Clevenger. I think a guy like Bieber is much more likely to be locked up into like a team friendly, you know, four five, six year deal that buys out some of his arm years, as opposed to a guy like Clevenger, who's going to be 29 in three weeks and, um, you know, throws with a lot of effort and intensity. And I, and I love that about him, but seems like a guy that might end up breaking down as we go forward. So I uh, like the thought it's, I didn't actually know that there was 13 guys on the, on the 40 man roster that are starting pitcher. So uh, especially with other guys like um, I don't think Eli Morgan's on the 40 man, is he? No, he's not, but obviously he'll be in triple A this year. So somebody else to watch out for depth wise. Right. So there's plenty of guys coming up. So it's definitely a way for, for us to kind of circumvent free agency and, and spending, you know, dollars in, in that realm and potentially use some of our assets to, to, you know, supplement the big league team that way instead. I also didn't mention Giancarlo Mejia. I know we didn't go through the whole list, but he's still on the 40-man roster, and I think you need to still look at him as a starter. So I just think it's it's something to watch because I, I don't know, that just seems like an awful lot of roster space to dedicate to one position, especially when they have so many other needs. Right. I'd be interested to see how that stacks up against other teams' 40-man rosters. Um, you know, just out of curiosity, I, I'm sure either somebody's done that already or it would be too hard to – Define, but to see what the you know what the distribution is like, are, are we a lot more stacked in terms of starting pitching than other teams, or is it um, you know? And maybe that helps us identify what teams might want to trade for some depth as well by doing that. But that, I think that would be kind of an interesting uh, little exercise to go through to see how we compare to other teams in that aspect. Yeah, it sounds like something somebody at IBI should break here soon. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, there was some other news too. Let's move on to other teams. This affects the Indians. Um, unlike last year where the off season kind of crawled to a pace, um, at the end, uh, there's already been a lot of action and, and obviously both on a catcher's market. I know Jeff Passon of ESPN keeps saying the catcher's market is so fast moving right now and everyone's scrambling for catching. Um, yeah, Monty Grandal got a four year, $73 million deal from the White Sox, which I'm not surprised by at all. I thought he should have got that last winter. Uh, so he thought he got the deal he deserved. Um, that kind of makes the White Sox really good. I know everyone was like, oh, they have James McCann. He was an all-star. But uh, I would definitely rather have Yasmani Grandal. And, and personally, good for the White Sox to not be like, oh, we had an all-star catcher. We'll stay with that. No, they went out and got maybe like the – I don't know, second, third best offensive free agent on the market. And then obviously upgraded catching with, with framing. And then they also re-signed Jose Abreu to a three-year, $50 million extension, which I don't like as much as the Grandal deal because I think Abreu was starting to hit a decline last year and he is over 30 and uh, over 30 first base DH types just don't age great. 
That seems like a lot of money to commit to him, but it seems like a a franchise kind of thank you deal that like a almost like a Kobe Bryant Lakers kind of deal in his later years that where you maybe didn't deserve right now, but maybe deserved in the past. Right. Um, but it, maybe it's, maybe it's good they kept him because I know they have Andrew Vaughn and uh, who's the catcher Zach Collins that's around that could play first base or DH, but he certainly raises their floor even if it comes at a price. But I don't know. I find the fact they added Grandal uh, makes them really interesting going into 2020. And I think if they if they make some moves on the pitching side of things, they could be a threat next year. I agree with you, and I think that's what I wrote down too. Is it, it really comes down to pitching? I I am with you in the in the camp that the Grandal deal was a great deal. He got you know definitely market value. He should have gotten that last year. He's a great framer. He's going to work well with this pitching staff. A lot of young guys uh, on the staff, especially some guys with poor control at times. Uh, I think Giolito did a little bit better this year, but there were, were you know bouts of it in the past. R- Ronaldo Lopez has some control issues and. Cease, you know, was walking 10% of the batters he faced in the minors. So uh, a veteran catcher to complement, you know, with McCann, um, you know, is, is a nice move. I, I'm sure they'll probably hang on to McCann as well. But, you know, I, I wonder if he could become a trade chip as well in the same way that, you know, you know, some teams are looking into guys like Austin Hedges, Omar Nevarez, um, you know, to fill in their catching catching depth and, and try to make them themselves better. But uh, I also feel the same about uh, Jose Abreu. I think you're right. They're paying him for what he used to be, not really what he is anymore. 32, you know, right-handed, 32-year-old right-handed power bats. Um, and guys like him who've always struggled with velocity, it's probably not a great combination. I think three years at least they're not locked into him, um, you know, until he's like 37 or 38. But, um, you know, I think it was more of a team chemistry play. I mean, in, in uh, Astro Ball, um, they talk about how important – Carlos Beltran was for the 2017 Astros. And I think in a way, Abreu is almost the same way of that glue guy that's going to help to bridge the gap between the vets that supplement the roster and the young, the young stars that are, you know, coming up through the minors and, and already in the majors. So it, it makes sense that the if they have the money and the means to do it, you know, by all means go, you know, go for it. But he, I don't think he's going to be an impact guy for them, you know, going forward necessarily. And um, the pitching aspect of things they're they're definitely short. Um, Gilito had a great year, struggled a little bit in the second half, mostly just because he started giving up a lot more home runs. Um, but the underlying metrics, the strikeouts, the walks were pretty much similar. So, I mean, I, I think he's pretty much broken out at this point. You know what you can kind of expect. Lopez is up and down. Cease is, is young and still a little bit erratic. And then guys like Carson Fulmer, he's probably a swing man, at, you know, most likely. And he's out of options as well. I think they're really short on pitching. I, I don't, you know, know at Kopech, how many innings can you really count on him um, for this year? Rodon is hurt almost all the time, every single year. So I think that's where they're really going to see. We're going to see how good they can be depending on what they do in free agency. And if they go out and sign a guy in the fringes, not a Strasburg or a Cole, but maybe a Zach Wheeler or a Kyle Gibson, someone that can really supplement the rotation and, and eat some innings and, and give them some good ball um, out of the starting spot. So that's what I'd be interested to see. They'll definitely be a lot better. They're clearly the, you know, in the top three in the AL central, the Tigers and Royals will be very bad again and probably very bad for the next, at least another two, you know year or two, but the, uh, the White Sox are definitely on the come up. So it, it's something hopefully the Indians are taking into account and 
they're ready to, you know, add to this roster that we have right now to make sure that we don't, you know, fall into third place in the division somehow. Funny you mentioned Carlos Beltran and the impact Obreu has, but I don't see Jose Abreu or anybody in the White Sox dugout banging on a trash can. <laughs> no, hopefully not, because then we'll have a whole other scandal next year. And also, the Indians play them, what, 19 times a year, so that, that's not a good advantage for us, but... Uh, no, that's, that's funny. I, I think, I think the glue guy is actually super important, especially as a guy like Abreu, who's, you know, I'm, unless I'm mistaken is bilingual. So that's probably good for some of the younger guys that don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's not bilingual, but I know that was really important for Beltron to merge the gap between the, the Latin players that would sit together and, you know, the, the non-Spanish speaking players that would also sit together. He kind of made them feel like they both could coexist. So, um, something to keep an eye out. Uh, eye out for for sure this coming year yeah i definitely agree with the glue guy thing and the, and the bilingual thing being important i just thought it was funny you brought that up and i really didn't even plan to talk about the the whole science stealing scandal which is just getting way crazy now with like buzzing band-aids and earpieces and oh yeah players <laughs> being given like deals if they come forward you know it could be not get not get in trouble if they come out and tell the truth if something's really going on. So that'll be fun to keep an eye on the rest of the winter to see where that investigation goes. Yeah, but, definitely. Uh, thing wasn't unfounded in 2017 when they had that guy on their dugout with that crazy cell phone that's banned for being sold in the U.S. Well, it's also funny too. Um, just uh, harken back to Astro here, but they wrote a whole book about the Astros' way and how they they took this team that was so bad and they made them into what they are. And then it's, you know, it, part of me is thinking like if I were the Astros and, and this book was written about me, I mean, and I know some people just don't, maybe they just, all they care about is winning, but man, if I had a book written about how great my process was, and then it comes out that I've been cheating in, in a way that was, you know, so deliberate and, and probably very instrumental in the, in the way that they're able to lay off bad pitches and, I mean, they have a they have excellent strikeout and walk rates, and they don't swing at bad pitches. You, I mean, you watch them against any team that they play against, and there's times where I'm like, man, how did he take that pitch? And I'm not saying that everybody is all the time, you know, benefiting from this. I think some guys like Bregman and Correa and Altuve already have very good feel for the strike zone, but it only helps those guys get even better to know what what is coming when they're up to bat. So yeah, that that's, it's kind of ironic. There was all that, the, the hoopla about the way the Astros run, run their team. And then it, you know, comes up that they're cheating. It, it really makes you question, you know, what, what other teams are doing and, and some of the things that, you know, we don't know behind the scenes about how other teams are having some success. Yeah. It's one area. It seems like the front or the major league baseball is actually trying to get in front of instead of the labor negotiations, which we can talk about another time too, because I think those are starting to get a little tense too. Um, in better news, I, and I don't think I have this written down wrong. Uh, did Shane Bieber finish third in the Cy Young voting? Was it third or was it lower? It was four, fourth, I think. It was fourth, okay. For sure. Was, yeah. That's just a crazy year though. I mean, I don't think anybody, and, and I think a lot of people in Cleveland liked Bieber. I remember saying on this podcast with uh, – Jake and Corey back in March, we were talking about the season preview. I said, I think I would take Bieber over every pitcher in the AL Central, maybe besides Jose Barrios. Like, and you can name any other pitcher in the AL Central coming into 2019. 
And I would have said I'd take Bieber over him, not even, you know, counting Kluber, Carrasco, Clevenger, Bauer. Um, I think Barrios is like the only guy I would have been like, I would take him over Shane Bieber. Um, but I didn't imagine Shane Bieber being so important that he finished fourth in the Cy Young voting and obviously winning uh, all-star MVP, putting up 5.6 F4 this year. And uh, really, and I, I think I said this even a year ago that Francona used to say that he had some Kluber-like tendencies and he sort of had a, a Kluber-esque year. He didn't have as good as a, a breakout in 2014 as Kluber did, but he came darn near close. And I couldn't have imagined this happening back in March, as much as I liked Shane Bieber. I I was uh, I was on Shane Bieber after last year. I, I had watched him a little bit in the minors, but I can't profess to say that I was like super well read, knew everything that he tried to do. I knew he was a command guy. I knew he had a nice pitch mix. Um, you know, relatively lower effort delivery, college guy. You think there's a higher floor there. Um, but, you know, when you saw the underlying metrics last year, the ERA didn't look uh, quite as good as you would want. But a lot of places were picking him as a breakout guy. And I don't think anybody could have expected him to finish fourth in the Cy Young voting. Testament to how great the Indians pitching has been. I mean, you think about Kluber's one, two Cy Youngs, Carrasco's finished fourth, Bauer's I don't know where Bauer finished last year after he got hurt. Was it like fifth or sixth or something? And then you have Bieber finishing fourth and Clevenger easily could have been up there as well if he hadn't gotten hurt. So it's pretty incredible. Um, I like the point. I think, I think Barrios is probably the only other one too. Um, it's kind of hard when you're, when you're in a division with the Tigers and the Royals who are trotting out, you know, Jake, Jacob Junis and Brad Keller and some of those guys, um, you know, Tyson Ross for the Tigers. I don't even know if he pitched really at all this year, but you know, we have a distinct advantage in that area, but I, I definitely think that Bieber uh, is going to be an elite guy for a, for a long time. He really exceeded all expectations of his ceiling that I could think um, that he had before. And he, like I said earlier, he seems like a guy that the Indians based on his work ethic and his, you know, command of four different pitches around the zone seems like a guy that they'll want to lock up uh, in some type of deal, you know, like they did with Carrasco and Kluber initially a few years ago. And um, I hope they do that because he'll be a a nice pillar in the, in this rotation for a long time and set the tone uh, in the way that Kluber does right now with, with all all the younger starting pitchers. So love, love Bieber and um, I'm happy for him that he got that honor and he had an incredible year. I mean, that's, that's awesome. I'm sure he didn't even think that he would have had this type of year. You're going into a second year in the big. So Kudos to him for all the hard work um, and performance that he had this year. Yeah, and how does a guy with a 94-mile-hour fastball uh, and who's mostly a command guy turn in a 14% strikeout rate? Well, he went from using his fastball 57% of the time last year to 45 this year and uh, upped his slider rate 4% to 26 and uh, took his curveball from 16 to 20 and then changed it from 4 to 7.3. So that seems like a pretty – Simple. I don't want to say simple because it's, it's hard to identify and harder to execute. But when you just look at it that way, you can clearly see that hey, just throw your fastball less and don't throw as many strikes as you did, which isn't a problem for a lot of guys, but it was for Bieber, and it all worked. And and I don't know where you are on this, but I want to say was it 2016? It might have been 2017. 2017, I think uh, Bieber and Savali both started in the captain's rotation. I'm trying to think. I know I think Brady Aiken was in there, and I forget who else was in that rotation. It was a good rotation, um, and Bieber moved a little bit faster. But I think coming into that season, I was thinking 
Savali was going to be the guy with the higher uh, floor just because of the slider. I didn't know if, if Bieber had enough of the secondary stuff to make it work uh, being a command guy. And I thought that Savali's slider uh, gave him a little bit of an edge as a starter. And then it turns out as much as, as good as Savali was this year, his brief stint that whatever Bieber did just worked out and he, he flourished and, I know a lot of that was command-based to begin with. Obviously, he took it to the next level this year, but uh, those two guys were closely grouped together. If I'm not mistaken, I think Savali was taken ahead of Beaver. Yeah, Savali was a, was a third-rounder, I'm pretty sure, from what was it, Northeastern, and, uh, and Beaver was a fourth-rounder from UC Santa Barbara. I actually remember watching Beaver pitch in the College World Series. They were playing – I want to say they were playing uh, Louisville, maybe, Um I think they, I think when he was there, maybe I'm thinking of a different year. There was like a, like a walk-off grand slam against off, off of one of the birdies um, at Louisville. And I think I thought that it was UC Santa Barbara, but maybe that was past, maybe it was a different team or maybe it was, it was not Bieber's year at least, but um, I had seen more of Bieber. So I, I can't say that I had a ton of opinions on Savali after watching Savali pitch this year. He seems very Bieber-esque. I don't know if he'll be quite, as good. I, I don't think we can expect, and it's not fair to expect every time we have a, a guy with good command that has a, a deep pitch mix and, and seems to be in control of himself on the mound that he's going to turn into Corey Kluber or Shane Bieber. But Savali definitely seems like a guy that, you know, before the season started, I was feeling him to be maybe more of like a, a fifth starter type. Um, now I, I see more upside there than I did before. I think at his peak, he could be a solid number three most likely a, a really good innings eating number four that keeps you in ball games and, and will get strikeouts when he needs to. And, and will have a great process um, to keep himself, you know, in order and, and, and feeling good on a day-to-day basis. But uh, I mean, that it's, it's incredible the depth that we, we have and, and the depth that we have that I didn't really know about going into last year, because I, I wasn't really sure what to expect from guys like Savali and, and Plesak um, and, we've accumulated a lot of great arms and, and that's a testament to how good the Indians are at, at p- player development, but more specifically pitching development um, in, in a market that pays pitchers millions and millions and millions of dollars and, and how risky pitchers are just based off how much they get injured. It's great to have that type of depth and, and to know that you can take guys with specific skill sets like that and, and get the most out of them. And that's why to me, like you said earlier, it makes sense why they would keep Moss because in, in case Scott Moss, even though he's got some control issues, he can really harness that and start pounding the zone more. And he's got good stuff across the board, some pedigree, you know, college wise. I think he went to Florida, right? So he, he played against great competition. Um, that's just a guy that the Indians are really great at developing. So um, I, I'm excited to see what they do next year. I'm not really sure who's going to make the rotation. Who's not obviously Bieber will be in it, but I'm curious to see what that fifth spot looks like and, and who wins that job out of spring training. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of competition for that fifth spot. But like you said, yeah, Bieber's definitely in it. And he was the fifth guy last year coming out of spring training, which made a lot of sense. But obviously took another step forward in his development. And that's as much as on him as it is in the pitching uh, rotation. And having Ruben Diabla, you know, up with the Big League Club uh, might help any of those guys uh, as well. One more note on Bieber, too. This is crazy. I just looked at this. Um, through 100 more innings this year, at the big league level, it did last year. He threw 114 innings at the big league level uh, in 2018, in addition to um, a little over 80 in the minors last year. 214 this year, 
his walk rate was exactly the same at the major league level this year as it was in his 114 innings last year at the major league level. And it's unbelievable. Six percent. I know. I don't know. It's just it's just a model of consistency, and that's you know kind of like Kluber. It's just a model of consistency. You know what you're going to get every fifth day, and uh, for a guy with who everybody thought was like an up and down fifth guy, like I remember Keith Law writing two years ago when he was blown to the minors and he was not walking anybody. And Keith Law was like, I don't want to be a wet blanket here, but this is just no more than a fifth or sixth starter. Like he's not much more. And I was like, man, that's, you know, I, I'm, we're probably a little more biased than someone like Keith Law, but um, it just felt like there was definitely more there than an up and down fifth starter. Uh, we just didn't know there was a, a Cy Young contender in there, which to be fair, nobody thought that way about Corey Kluber uh, when the Indians trade for him in 2011 either. So the Indians are super good. Right. And Shane Bieber's rise was quick and surprising. And um, I wonder if there's even more there, to be honest. Like, it's it's hard to believe there could be more there. But, I mean, can you expect another five-win season out of him next year? I would say so. I don't. He doesn't give me any indication to think that he can't do that. Even in 2018, he put up 2.7 WAR in, in uh, 114 and two thirds innings, and you know, and that was with people were saying, "Oh, he's got you know the people that don't necessarily look at the the metrics the way that you know people that are more into baseball do." But 4.55 ERA still puts up almost three WAR, and in a full season, he puts up 5.6. Like that's. I, I don't know, and you never know what the ceiling is going to be. If he already had this type of year and he's only 24, going to be 25, there's definitely could be more in the tank. I don't know if he'll ever have, and, you know, again, it's not really fair to compare, but a Kluber-esque year where he completely dominates the way that he did even, let's go back to uh, 2017, um, when he was striking out everybody, Um you know, but I, there's definitely could be a ceiling for, for more there. And, and, you know, it's funny to me, I just remembered when we were talking about this, that I remember I had people complaining to me that the Indians were cheap and, and stupid for not wanting to trade Shane Bieber for two months of Bryce Harper in 2018. Oh, my. I, yeah. And think about how sick we would be right now if we saw Bieber flourishing on a championship World Series team and knowing that he would have been on our rotation. I mean, it... it it's unbelievable. And it goes back to what we talked about the last uh, podcast where, you know, fans don't understand how value is ascertained in trades and how you, um, how you make deals like that. Um, but it just would have been, that would have been catastrophic if we did something like that to get two months of Bryce Harper that ultimately wouldn't have really affected anything. Uh, Cause that team unfortunately just didn't, didn't have it. Uh, for whatever reason, they just never really could get it going where you felt like they had the edge. But yeah, Bieber, I'm looking forward to him next year. And he's going to be a great piece of this rotation for a long time. And I, and I hope they can get something done with him. I'm not sure if they'll be able to. I'm not even sure what a comp in terms of pre-arm extensions would be, but uh, they should definitely target him as a guy to look at, especially if they know that Lindor is just not going to get done. I would definitely look to him to see if they can get something going. Yeah, I definitely want to lock him up before he goes to arbitration. Those numbers start soaring, especially if this is the beginning of a good run for him. And I, I remember those conversations last year on Twitter about that. And I, my only thing was people were talking about Bieber, just, just Bieber for Harper. And I'm like, there's no way they're asking for just Bieber. Like there was rumors about McKenzie too. And I remember thinking, okay, they're probably going to ask for both. They're going to make this move. And 
Bieber was bad enough, but not Bieber and McKenzie. And, and McKenzie obviously didn't pitch at all in 2019, but I still wouldn't have done that. That's crazy. Never, never would have done that. That would have been so. That would have been so backwards to make a move like that after trading for a high floor guys and sacrificing upside to then trade your your best, you know, high ceiling assets at the top of the, you know, the top of the system for a, a rental. That doesn't happen anymore. And I, thankfully it doesn't happen anymore because we couldn't sustain a team if we did that. Yeah. That's a move. The nineties Indians probably would have made, you know, Brian Giles for yep. a ringtone. Um, right. Speaking yeah. of trade value, you, uh, you brought this up to me, you know, just talking about trade value a little bit and, and you brought it up earlier too. Um, Joel Sherman, I, he, I think he writes the New York Post. Is that what it is? I know he's on. Yeah, one, be, one, of, one of those. New York tabloid. Not on those tabloid, but, um, you know, he was there talking about if the Yankees do or don't sign Garrett Cole. He mentioned that uh, the Yankees should ask the Indians about Bieber or Clevenger, which, of course, you know, I think should make Indians fans irate a little bit because just because the Indians have good pitching, um, you know, they expect the Yankees should be, like, able to, uh, you know, find a way to trade for that, which I'm not trading Shane Bieber for almost anything at this point. And like you said, maybe you, maybe you think about capitalizing on Clevenger just because of his age and, and effort um, because you're not going to sign him long-term, but at the same time, I don't know if he, there's too much, there's too much upside in the near future with him. I mean, he already had one 200 inning season, which was really good. And I kind of think the injury he had this year is fluky. You know, how, what he looks like four years down the road, I don't know. Uh, I don't think this is the right winner to trade him. And I can't really, you know, we talked last time about trade for Lindor. And maybe there's a package on the Yankees that fits for Clevenger. But I have a hard time off the top of my head thinking of anybody in that system that makes the Indians better in 2020 um, by trading him there and, and not having Clevenger uh, in 2020. And I, I don't think I would do that. But I would probably say, aside from Lindor, those are probably the two guys that are most valuable on the 25-man roster, which is funny because it shows you how fast baseball changes because, what was it, two years ago on Fangraph's uh, trade value series, Lindor and Ramirez were like one and two, and Kluber was up there. Um, mm-hmm. now Kluber was like 12 or 11. Yeah, and now he's way down there. Uh, Lindor is a little less valuable because of arbitration. Ramirez is probably still just as valuable, but – I would think that Bieber and Clevenger are, are the most two most valuable players in terms of trade on the roster right now, aside from Francisco Lindor. Yeah, no, that's pretty spot on. And uh, I agree with you. I don't think that Clevenger, it's not the right time to capitalize on his value, especially if you have, I mean, next winter, you could see if Kluber has a good year and they pick up his option for whatever it is, 18 and a half mil or something, you could see Clevenger and Kluber shopped pretty heavily, um, you know, to see if they can make some upgrades. You, you'll have Santana coming off the books. Uh, I think, um, you know, Lindor will be going into his last year. So those are guys that I would look at more so next year. It wouldn't make any sense to detract from the big league team right now to trade Clevenger. I think there's a scenario in the next year to year and a half or so that you could definitely see Clevenger moved. Um, but I don't think that it's the right time to do it, but yeah, Bieber and Clevenger definitely have the most value. I don't think there's anybody else outside of maybe Brad hand that has even a shot. I don't think anybody is going to trade. Uh, they're not going to trade Ramirez. They're not going to trade 
you know, Fran Mill or, you know, Bowers, who doesn't really have a lot of value right now anyways, but Mercado, uh, Roberto Perez, I think hand you could see just because of the way the reliever market work it works and how, how fickle relievers are year to year that if they feel like Karen is really establishing himself, that hand could be a guy that goes um, and capitalize while he has value still, um, you know, in the upper echelon. And not that I mean, he has really done anything crazy for the Padres yet, but you know, that was our top prospect at the time that we traded for him and Adam Simber, who could easily be DFA'd within the next six months too, if they decide that he's not worth it, uh, if they have that three batter minimum rule. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that those guys definitely have the, the most trade value, but it'll be interesting to see how, how it goes. I, I, I don't like how the media always takes looks at our team and then speculates like, like speculates that a bigger market team is going to take them from us kind of sucks. Uh, I feel like I'm Billy Bean in Moneyball right now. Just like, <laughs> why, like, why, why can't we just have nice things and I have, and not everyone else be taking them away from us before they're even gone. But um, you'll see how it goes. I'm, and I think they'll, they'll definitely shop. You'll hear their names talked about, but I don't think anything actually happens of substance this off season with either Bieber, obviously, or, or Clevenger um, for that matter as well. Yeah. I think the only real news you'll hear about Bieber is hopefully an extension talk. Uh, yeah. I would probably have Ramirez actually above Lindor in trade value just because of the contract, even though I think, no, I mean, obviously it's not going to be talked about because they have a team friendly deal on him. And, you know, he had the bad first half this year. I obviously, I think he still has more value than Lindor due to that contract. I had Reyes right behind Lindor and then Mercado. Then behind Mercado, I was kind of torn on Roberto Perez and Carlos Santana only because um, the catching market has been, you know, crazy this winter. Teams are look are you know just scrambling to find catching with so many guys changing hands. And he just came off a Gold Glove year and a 24 homer year. So I wonder what his value would be. Obviously, not going to trade him, but um, if you're just looking at you know value in general, I think he's up there. And because Etienne is a little older and a first baseman and um, on a shorter term deal, and because Perez's deal is so friendly. And then right after Santana, I had Brand Hand. And then I think it's interesting you mentioned Brand Hand, and we we're talking about during the season, if the Indians would trade him along with Bauer, they ended up not trading him. But uh, given how bad he was in the second half, I almost wonder if the Indians feel like they couldn't trade him this winter. I, if any, anybody in this roster most likely to be traded, I think it's Brad Hand. But I think the Indians feel like there's not enough value to be gained by trading him because teams are going to look at the second half and wonder what happened. Yeah, he he's not – it's definitely not the right time to capitalize. But if, you know – I don't know what, where we're going to be. I, I'm, I'm anticipating us being obviously very competitive next year. I'm sure we'll be in the thick of things, but as we've seen them do, especially this year, they'll be willing to subtract from the big league roster if they think that it gives them a little bit more flexibility going forward. And if they're, they have a, a pretty deep relief core and they say, you know, hand is expendable and it makes sense to sell high. I, I could definitely see a scenario where they trade them, even if they're, you know, in, contention or in first place now it depends on how close and, and how things shake off I mean I, I wouldn't say it's as likely as it was this year just considering where we were in relation to the twins and how we were kind of fighting for the wild card it made it a little bit more understandable to make a move that they did how much we needed offense too but um, I don't I think it's there's a non-zero chance that that he could get dealt within next season and more likely, you know, maybe coming off of a, a good 2020, he gets dealt next year. I think, he'll ha I think he has control through 2021. I want to say through options and whatnot. So, and he's very team friendly. Uh, so anybody could afford him. 
Um, but yeah, hands definitely, I, I, I would say hands definitely the most likely to get dealt um, off, off this team besides Lindor. Yeah, I don't think yeah, that's going to happen. Um, anything else to add on, on trade value? Because I want to move on to like one more topic before we close out the podcast. I don't have anything else on uh, trade value. I think we covered everything pretty pretty well in the last segment there. Yeah, I don't really know if they're going to make any moves from the big league roster this winter, but um, they certainly have more value on the big league roster than they did a year ago, um, which everybody was you know, kicking and screaming about last offseason, even though it wasn't perfect. Um, I think the roster is much better going into 2020 than it was going into 2019. Uh that's the next decade too. And uh, by the time everyone listens to this tomorrow or whenever they tune in, um, I'll have the, at least my version of the all decade roster up on IBI uh, went pretty deep. You know, I looked at uh fan graphs for, for everybody who played certain positions from 2010 to 2019 uh, looked at some other stats as well. Obviously didn't just go off of that four. Um, but that was kind of my basis just to go through who had all played where. And I, try to take into account who played the most innings at a certain position throughout the stretch. You know, obviously guys like uh, Carl Santana catching early in part of the decade and then switched to first base or Lonnie Chisnall played third, but wound up playing more outfield throughout his career as an Indian. Um, so I'm going to go through real quick and just kind of name off my roster. And uh, if you want to tell me if you agree or disagree, if there have any other names you think were worthy. And I think the offensive side of things is, Actually, there's probably a lot of undebatable ones just because of how bad 2010 and 2012 were. And even the guys who were here in 2013 didn't make as much impact um, if they weren't here after that. But uh, I did go with Jan Gomes over Roberto Perez at catcher, just probably due to volume because Gomes was a silver slugger in 2014 and uh, caught most of the games 2013 to 2017. And then again, 2018. And disagreements on, on Gomes or Perez? No, I mean, personally, I, I would I would side that way as well. Perez, Perez had some good moments before he got, you know, the full-time starting role, but uh, Gomes has a larger body of work, and, and there would really be nobody else um, before Gomes that was would be worth, you know, putting in there as well. Who, who even – who was the catcher uh, in, like, 2010, 11, and 12? I mean, who, who was the guy that – we had, I don't even remember. Well, Carl Santana was the Indians catcher. That's true. Uh, in 2011, I think was his rookie year. Uh, 2010, he came before that actually. Yeah. 2010, he came and played 46 games until, uh, I forget who the runner was, but, uh, somebody from Boston slid into his leg and took him out and he uh-huh. missed the rest of the season. That was pretty scary. Cause Santana had a, a 140 way to runs created plus. Uh, and, and 192 at bats before that injury it looked like he was going to be a star, and everyone freaked out. And uh, ended up being good. He moved to first base, but yeah, he caught 2010, 2011, 2012, and then caught most of 2013 before a concussion um, forced the Indians to move him to DH slash first base. Um, and I, I remember when uh, f- when Fangraphs uh, updated their catcher framing into their like their WAR calculations and his seasons and like. 10, 11, and 12 went from like three win years to like 0.4 because he was such a bad catcher. <laughs> yeah, he had, he had the arm. There was no doubt he had the arm to play catcher, but 
uh, everything else just never quite worked out back there. And thank goodness it worked out to the Indians in Santana long term. But um, and probably better for him to move anyway, just because you know his bat has been so valuable and would have been ruined by catching all those years. And don't forget, before Gomes, uh, he wasn't even on the on the roster. It took a shoulder injury to Lou Marson uh, in 2013 down in Tampa that basically ended his career for Jan Gomes to get called up. So, Laser Lou Marson was the Indians' primary catcher before between Santana and uh, Gomes. It was a good decade behind the I, plate. Uh, <laughs> I always loved I always loved Lou Marson actually, and, and also not to detract too much from this, but I just detra- fun trivia question. Do you remember who? we traded for Jan Gomes uh, and obviously to the Blue Jays, but who was the uh, guy that we sent to them for Jan Gomes? Oh yeah. It was, he got, he got Mike Avilos with him and that was uh, Esmil Rogers. Yep. Esmil Rogers. <laughs> Great call. I oh, love, man. I love those little fun facts like that. Cause that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. And I remember watching him pitch and I think he, you know, he pitched a few years after that, but um, great job by the Indians to extracting as much value out of Esmil Rogers as they could. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and then, that trade, I mean, what I think, I think Rogers was a waiver claim from like the Yankees or something, and then mm-hmm. they turned, yep. they traded, turned into Gomes and Avilas. And I know everyone kind of disliked Avilas maybe because the Indians kept putting him in center field, uh, Francona did, but they turned around and turned Jan Gomes into uh, you know Daniel Johnson, Jeffrey Rodriguez, and Andrew Monastero. So the, that tree is not done yet. I'm curious to see what else they end up extracting out of waiver claim and Esmil Rogers that. Uh, yeah. great moves on uh, other guys that caught this decade I, I put on here the all not decade team we don't really have to go position by position but I thought I at least had mentioned that uh, Luke Carlin who's now managing the captains uh, caught mm-hmm. the Indians in this decade uh, George, George Kateris Kevin Pulecki obviously this year Brett Hayes which I don't have any recollection of um, Eric Haas obviously Mike Redman and Chris Jimenez who was here twice during this decade. I don't have any recollection of Mike Wedden or Brett Hayes, gotta be honest. I could tell you right now with hundred percent certainty that I've never heard their names in my entire life. So that just shows you, I don't, I have no idea who they are or when they caught, but kudos to them for making the bigs. <laughs> Mike Redden was the manager of the Marlins like for one season. They were actually pretty good and they fired him. Everyone was, didn't understand what happened. I don't oh really know yeah. Him. Mike Red, I thought you said Mike Resman. I did. I was like, I don't know who that is. Yeah, Mike Redman. I remember. I remember Mike Redman definitely. He he was with, he played with the Marlins for for a little while too. And I don't know, maybe maybe like the Twins or something. I don't know. But yeah, that, that's funny. There's some there's some good names on there, especially Chris Jimenez. He was so instrumental in 2016. You know when Gomes went down and we had Perez playing and Jimenez was the was the backup guy. He kind of felt like like our version of you know Carlos Beltran. He seemed like a a big glue guy. Um, in that locker room for that, that championship run. Yeah, he was a big part of that. He was a, a good team leader and uh, caught the Twins and kind of served as a team leader. I think he's a coach now for the Dodgers. I don't know. I have to check that. I'm not sure. Yeah. First base, I think Carl Santana is probably an, an easy choice. Uh, unless you have any other wild arguments I haven't considered. Uh, maybe Casey Kochman. <laughs> yeah, he definitely was beyond negative one point four wins above replacement in two thousand eleven and two thousand twelve. Uh, can you guess who had the second most wins above replacement for Fangraphs at first base for the Indians in this decade? Wow, that is that is an amazing question. Um, 
man, I don't, oh, I don't, I, you know, if, if, if you, if I were to take a guess right now and I don't, I don't even think he played first base very much. I think he was more DH, but I, I just remember Brandon Moss came in my head. Oh, oh, maybe Mark Reynolds. Did Mark Reynolds play first? <laughs> Mark Reynolds did play some first base. Uh, he was top five this decade. And he actually did have a positive war in the 99 at bat or 99 games he played before the innings DFA'd him. Yep. Uh, but he who, is not. The, who was the, it though? Russell Branyan. No way, Russell Branyan. <laughs> Russell Branyan played That's crazy. The Indians in 2010 hit 10 homers, uh, 24 RBIs, and uh, 124 weighted runs created plus. Good for 1.4 wins before the Indians traded him to the Seattle Mariners. It was like a swan song with us. I remember hearing. I mean, when I was growing up, I <laughs> Russell Branyan was the guy, and just unfortunately never never really panned out. I mean, I know he had a couple, you know, like that year it was like serviceable, but uh, man, I, I never would have guessed that. I don't even think I knew that he played with us in this decade. Yeah. That was the second time, obviously, like you said, it was a prospect in the nineties. I think, I think Brandon actually would have been like, he was kind of Joey Gallo before Joey Gallo. Uh, mm-hmm. never had the power Gallo did obviously, cause he never w- was healthy and didn't play enough, but kind of the same, you know, two fifty, two thirty hitter and a ton of walks and, and homers i think he would have been more revered today than he was when he came up initially but yeah he in just 52 games in 2010 he was the second most valuable first baseman of the decade which is above mike napoli yonder alonzo mark reynolds and then there's uh chris johnson who didn't chris johnson <laughs> andy Marte, who did not post uh who both post zero wins above replacement in this decade uh, Russ Kanzler, Adam Rosales, Jordan Brown, Jake Bowers, Bobby Bradley, Nick Swisher, Hazes Aguilar, Casey Kochman, and Matt Laporta also played first base this decade for the Indians. Oh, man, Matt Laporta. That's a name I haven't heard in a while, too. Yeah, Sheesh. selling uh, selling <laughs> in Ford, I think, now. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. Uh, second base is just as easy because just nobody played second base during this decade as much as Jason Kipnis. Uh, 1,121 games, 22.8 war. Um, can you guess the second most war in this decade by an Indian second baseman? This is primary, mind you, not like, you know, a guy who played like an inning at second base. This is guys who like pretty much played second base more than any position they played here. How about uh, Orlando Cabrera? Orlando Cabrera posted point zero, or I'm sorry, zero or point seven negative wins. Okay, perfect. I'm on the right track. Um, you know, the other name that came to my head, and it's definitely not this guy, but the guy that was also being talked about as the next the next guy was Cord Phelps. Remember Cord Phelps? He came up uh, in 2011, I think, and he, I remember him hitting a home run against Pittsburgh, maybe in like a mid-June series, and then pretty much right after that, Kipnis came up and, and, and took over and never relinquished the spot. Uh, man, well, it's got to be somebody from 2010 or 2011, and Oh man, my heart my heart wishes that it was Ronnie Billiard. He was my favorite player growing up in in the early two thousands. I I loved Ronnie Billiard so much. I want I wanted to be him. I was like would, would pretend to be him on the field all the time. Um, but I don't know. I, I I have no guesses on this one. It's actually Mike Freeman. Oh my Mike god! Freeman. Are you serious? <laughs> Mike Freeman had one win about uh, Fangraphs win above replacement this year. Uh, next closest was Jason Nix, point, or 0.7. Um, I think that was 2012. Jason Donald, 
uh, 0.6, Eric Gonzalez 0.4. And then from there it goes uh, 0.0 or 0.2 is Drew Sutton, which only played 11 games. I think he was mostly a shortstop. Um, Brad Miller 0.1, Mark Grunzelanek uh, negative 0.1. And then there was also Adam Rosales, Justin Sellers, Max Moroff, Elliot Johnson, the one and only Michael Martinez, uh, Orlando Cabrera, Cord Phelps, and then Luis Salvina at the bottom of the list. What a decade is that. Okay. Jason Kipnis just kind of hogged second base from, I think he also came up in 2010. That was the same year as Santana, I think, or was it 2011? He was 2011 he came up. Uh, Kip came up in 2011, yep. Yeah. So, yeah, there wasn't really anybody else playing there. Um, I, don't, I don't think we need to go into third base and shortstop. This is pretty obvious. Like, Lindor at shortstop because uh, Azurba Cabrera is the only guy that played any significant amount of games there in this decade. Um, I'm sure – I'm pretty sure you could have guessed that, so I didn't ask. That would have been – Yeah. That was not a, a good trivia question, but – we did have Jason Donald there for a little bit. Brent Lillibridge was on the on the roster this decade playing shortstop. Uh, and so was Anderson Hernandez. And then, man, somehow in, in 15 games, um, with any player who put up 20 at-bats this decade at shortstop, the Indians, Eric Stamets, uh negative or .07 wins about replacement, was last in the list. That's, that's really hard to do. It, it is it is really hard to do, but if you had if you had asked me that, I, I probably would have guessed him. I also I, I need you to throw me some 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 layups here on, on these questions, so I don't get every single one of them wrong. I would have loved <laughs> to be able to say as Dribble Cabrera and, and known that I was right. Okay, well let's let's do third base then because you should be able to get this one right. So obviously, Jose Ramirez is the pick here. I don't think there's anybody else you could really argue. Uh, I wrote a lot about him just what kind of decade he had, considering nobody really had heard of him until 2012. Um, then he made the majors in 2013. So um, you can probably guess who second is, but I'm also going to ask you to guess who was third at third base in wins above replacement this decade. Well, if I had to take a guess, I would say maybe Lonnie Chisenhall was, was the second one. Yeah, that was an easy one. He was uh, had eight okay. wins of replacement this decade for the Indians. Okay, um, you man, could probably third one. You just got to you got to dig a little bit. I, I think you can get this one. Was it uh, was it Juan Uribe? It was not Juan Uribe. Did not play here long enough, but uh, he was exactly a zero. Amazingly, my heart wanted it to be Juan Uribe. Um, man. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't a little I, bit less. Come on. I, I think you can do it. It was not. It was not a good time for Indians baseball, which obviously makes sense. Twenty thirteen would have been Lonnie Chisholm, and since then it's been Ramirez. But it was not a good time for Indians baseball, and he was kind of a fun player. He's a bit of a fighter. Bit of a fighter. I, I'm I'm gonna be honest. I my brain's not working right now. Just just tell me so I so I don't hold up so I don't hold up the rest of of the list. <laughs> it was Jack Hanahan at two point four. Oh no! I see. Right when you said it, now now I'm like I'm kicking myself. Yep, I remember Jack Hanahan. I loved watching him come to bat and strike out. <laughs> he was pretty good. He had a 95 weighted runs created plus in 215 games. He was pretty yeah. serviceable. Had a couple home runs, and I. Remember him starting a bench clearing brawl with Kansas City one year. 
he he was such a sure sure-handed third baseman. I always felt pretty confident with him at the hot corner, but in terms of anything to do with hitting a baseball, I I I can't say that I ever believed in him. Yeah, he was fun to watch when the Indians weren't very good. Um, other names that appeared at third base this decade, we said Andy Marte, rest in peace. Uh, Johnny Peralta did play for the Indians this decade, believe it or not. Mm. Uh, that's a throwback. You mentioned Juan Uribe, obviously Josh Donaldson, Mark Reynolds, um, Yu Chang this year, Brent Lillibridge, Ryan Flaherty, who just retired. I'm not going to go there because I still have bad feelings about Ryan Flaherty. Giovanni Urshela, Mike Avilas. Um, two guys I did not think of, Adam Everett and Jose Lopez, both played for the Indians this decade. All right, let's see, let's see what we got here. What's, what's, what's next on the list? All right, left field. You can probably guess who I went with in left field. It's obviously Michael uh, Brantley. Michael, Michael Brantley, yeah. Yeah. Um, this was a bit of a harder list, but i got to pull this up because Fangraphs has it, like, sorted by um, anybody who played left field. Like, I, I, I put in plate appearances, so anybody who would have played left field um, got to be on the list. So Brantley obviously was the choice at left field. Um, who do you think had the second most wins above replacement um, playing left field primarily? And I'll eliminate a few guys for you to make it easier. Rajay Davis was mostly um, a center fielder in 2016. Austin Jackson was mostly a right fielder in, 26, in 2017. And Jordan Luplo um, was mostly a right fielder this year. Um, so – I'll take those guys off the list. Who do you think had the second most wins above replacement in the last decade in left field? Wow. Um, well, I do, and I, I don't know if this is like a nuance to the question or, or anything, but Jose Ramirez played a little bit of left field in 2016, <laughs> did he not? He did. He did. And, and he, maybe you're right. Uh, he doesn't show up on this list. So Okay. That's, that's, a, that's a good point, actually. So, he must have not accumulated enough time even to be on this list because there are guys on this list, and I'm like, wow, I didn't remember them playing this many innings in left field, and they clearly didn't. So um, how Fangraphs put together this board for left field was interesting. That is interesting. Um, I, man, this, these, are, these are really tough questions, especially at the, at the end of a, of a nice long uh, you know, <laughs> Monday here. But, um, man, I'm, there's a – He's a minor league I manager. I don't know. He's a minor league manager now. Minor league manager. I not feel like I'm going Indians. crazy right now. <laughs> well, how much baseball did the you Indians were terrible from twenty, from 2010 and 2012. See, I was uh, what was I in 2010? I was in eighth grade in 2010, or going into eighth grade. So I, uh, I like I watched baseball, but I don't think I like. I don't think I followed it in the same way that I do now. So some of these names, like they'll they'll come up, and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that guy. But <laughs> um, off the top of my head, right now, I'm like, I'm struggling to find names. Um, man, it, just get, give me this one too. <laughs> it was Shelly Duncan. I'm so mad right now because I was gonna say <laughs> Shelly Duncan. I, I know everyone says that, but like he went through my head, and I was like, there's no way that he had the other the other name was. Um, wasn't there, wasn't there a Dickerson that had, that we had on the team as well? He kind of had a, he was a lefty and he kind of had a feel like Michael Brantley at the plate. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was Chris Dickerson. And uh, yeah, that was 2015, he did exactly zero wins. <clears throat> he also uh, searches his name on Twitter. I think I 
he got mad. Like he was walking through downtown. He saw people wearing like full Cavs gear. He saw someone like in a Cavs jersey and like Cavs basketball shorts. It was like, why do people in Cleveland wear like full uniforms like their players? I remember tweeting <laughs> when he said that. And I was like, clearly Chris Dickerson doesn't get how passionate Cleveland sports fans are. And he like found the tweet. I didn't tweet him. He found it and was like, um, sensitive much, and I was like, "Oh, didn't realize you searched for your name on Twitter." <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's a good story. I remember, like, I liked watching him hit because he had this—he had this smoothness about him that my young brain thought looked a lot, of, a little bit like Michael Brantley. And then, uh, obviously, he was not even, not even close. Um, was there, was, is there another person on this list, or was that, was that, was Shelly Duncan like the main guy? Yeah, unfortunately, Shelly Duncan was was really the main guy. There was Coco Crisp and. Uh, Austin Kearns were up there, but they were kind of all over the place. We're not even going to do Abraham center field. Almonte. Abraham Almonte played mostly center field uh, okay. with the Indians, so he was not on the list. We're not going to do center field because um, the guy who played most things in center field this decade was Michael Brantley, so he was off the list because he played he he played more this decade in left field, but nobody played more innings in center field than him this decade, which tells you how bad center field has been for the Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, this is more controversial. I went with Tyler Naquin. Tyler Naquin had uh, a two-win season in 2016 in center field. Um, the only other guys really worth considering were Michael Bourne, um, Oscar Mercado, Rajay Davis, and Bradley Zimmer. There was nearly nobody else. I know Naquin was terrible no. in center field. I didn't know who else to go with. That That's, you're, that's really your only – I mean – that's all. That's all you have there. That that the we and we've talked about this before. We've we've struggled to de- to develop center fielders in our, in our system, and I I don't I don't know who coming up really fits the bill that that can change that. But um, yeah, that that's a good pick for that for that spot. And then right field, I, I do want to point out that uh, Grady Sizemore did play for the Indians in this decade. Just gonna point that I know, out. And, and you know it it, hurt, it hurts me because I because he should have. He should have been the center fielder of this decade too. He he should have been he should have been the guy for more years than than he was. And, we, and I know we this this could become the Grady Sizemore fan club podcast because we've talked about him two times now in the last two podcasts. Oh, we're doing that at some point. Maybe like after the winter meetings, if things slow down again, we're going to do just a Grady Sizemore podcast. That's going to happen. Uh, right field I, I, was. I literally start prepping now. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to go into there. We can have a lot of fun with that. Um, there's somebody on Twitter who runs like a Sizemore fan account. And I, I tweeted like a while ago. I think he might, I think they might've tweeted back at you because we were saying something on Twitter and uh, like they were responding with like, Oh, he's got three kids now and he lives here. And I'm like, Oh, yep. how do you know all that? <laughs> I don't know how you know all that. I, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's funny that, that people know all that stuff about, about celebrities like that. But, um, but yeah, uh, let's, let's move on to right field. I, you know, I, I think the, you know, the guy that you have in this spot is, is an obvious one. Um, but I'm interested to try to take guesses as to who was close. Yeah, so Sin Tzu Chu, even though he was only here for two of the years of the decade, or I'm sorry, three seasons of the decade, um, was the clear winner here, which is really sad uh, for the State of the Union South Field. Uh, yeah, the second most wins of replacement in right field uh, this decade. Do you have a guess? I'll tell you that um, played most of the things in right field this year. Um, had a 2.2 win season, which kind of surprised me. That's pretty solid, 85 games. But he is not um, – he is just behind the leader in this category. 
Okay, so I'm assuming you're talking about Tyler Naquin right there, correct? No, that was Lupo I just mentioned. Um, oh, sorry. Naquin was, yeah, Naquin was, in, Naquin was in center, so he's out of this category. Um, how, about, Lupo, uh, how about Chisenhall? Uh, Chisenhall would count, but he was at third base, so he was considered for third. Oh man, this is this is. I have like all these random names going through my head, like uh, Brandon Geyer and uh, oh oh oh. Uh, how about Ryan Rayburn? Yes, you got one, Ryan Rayburn. Two wow, points, I, I placed in three seasons. I always remember him because he looked like Tim McGraw. <laughs> I never got never looked at his picture enough to know that, but uh, I'm telling you right now, look it up. They they are they are twins. I've seen Tim McGraw live, and now I have to. Look, I mean, they they have the same they have the same face. Yeah, if you gave McGraw like more of Rayburn's scruff in this picture, I'm looking at. Yeah, you're right. That's that's they're pretty close. All right, I wonder if Rayburn is a country fan. I think he was. I think his walk music was country, but yeah, I played mostly right field, uh, more innings in right field than he did in any other position in the decade. Um, for the Indians, which was 2013, 2014, and 2015. 28 homers, uh, 120 way to run squared plus. Nice bench guy. Part of the, uh, the goon squad with Jan Gomes, Jason Giambi, and uh, Michael Vilas. It was maybe the best Indian yeah, bench in the decade. That, that was a really good bench. There was a lot of, there was a lot of fun names and, and guys that could come up and deliver in the big moment. And I, I always like watching Rayburn, Rayburn play. He, he was – he had some, you know, some solid years for us. So I, I'm glad that he's honored on this list. Yeah, he, he definitely made the list. Other guys in the right field this year or this decade were, uh, you said, Brandon Geyer, Drew Stubbs, uh, Marlon Bird was here for a very brief time. Yasiel Puig this year uh, was 10th on the list. Jay Bruce, Melky Cabrera, can't forget him. Good guy, David Murphy, can't forget him. Oh, David Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> Travis Buck. Jerry Sands, uh, Brandon Barnes, very briefly. Tyler Holt played some innings in right field. I loved Tyler Holt. Uh, wrecked my cell phone in 2010. Or no, yeah, it was 2010. He was part of the captain's championship team. Uh, we were in the dugout or in the clubhouse covering the post game and uh, came over to me and sprayed him the champagne and it totally ruined my phone. So thanks, Tyler. Nice guy. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of worth it, though. A nice guy. Yeah, I think he's coaching at Florida State now. Yeah, he's back there, I think, with James, uh, James Ramsey. I think both of them are coaching there now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Speaking of blast the past, uh, Chris Dickerson, Jason Kubel for all of eight games. Kosuke Fukudome, Brandon Moss, uh, Daniel Robertson, Elliot Johnson, Thomas Neal, who I was a big prospect fan of that didn't work out. I think he's a hitting coach with the, the Giants now in their system. And then J.B. Shuck. So, oh, my God. <laughs> Great names. Uh, DH was was a little bit easier. Um, I'm not going to go too deep on this one because obviously it's a mishmash category, but I went with Encarnacion. Technically, Travis Hafner had uh, 3.7 wins above replacement this decade, which kind of surprised me considering after 2007, he was pretty much done. Um, Encarnacion had 3.3 total in the two years he was here, but I went with him just because of his impact those two years and um, had, I think, over 70 home runs in those two years and over 200 RBIs. That was a pretty good 
two-year stretch considering how bad Indians had it at DH this decade. But I was surprised that Hafner technically had um, higher F4 in this decade than anybody else at that position. I never would have guessed that. I didn't even know. I didn't even know that he had that, you know, those type of numbers in, you know, whatever years, 2010 and 11 or whenever he was actually playing. I, I like the Edwin pick. I think he was pretty instrumental. It was kind of that first, I mean, really the only, in, I mean, you can count Swisher and, and Bourne in there too, but like Edwin was like the guy and you're coming off a world series, you know, appearance. And the day that I found out that we got Edwin, I, I was so ecstatic. I, I was like, wow, this is incredible that we, you know, made a play for this type of bat. And uh, it was a lot of fun having him in the lineup. Unfortunately, didn't couldn't capitalize, you know, while he was here. And I actually have seen someone talk about speculative fits for him as the Indians. I don't know what type of money that he's going to get. Um, but, I mean, I don't know. I also don't know where he fits either because we already have – guys that you know realistically should be DHing like Fran Mill and I mean Santana might need some days off Bobby Bradley is a DH so I don't know where he fits but love the Edwin pick miss having the parrot in, in Cleveland yeah definitely was a fun maybe the most fun winner ever considering they you know really cashed in on that World Series run and, and tried to add the team that in that 2017 roster was so good and I've said this to so many people 2016 was a lot of fun and and I didn't expect them after all the injuries to make the World Series and be up three to one. 2017 hurt way worse just because that roster was fully loaded and it just seemed like they were, you know, you had the best bullpen, you had a great rotation, Carrasco was healthy and um, just a really great lineup through and through on that team and that one hurt. Um, we'll see where Edwin ends up this winter. We don't really have to go too deep in pitching. I'll just uh, point out, and you can tell me if you disagree in any spots. I had Kluber at number at the, as the ace, which I don't think there's any disagreement there. I had Carrasco and Bauer two and three, and then uh, four and five. I, I had Justin Masterson at four and Clevenger at five, and this had a lot to do with volume. Going with Masterson, uh, 15 wins above replacement um, from 2010 to 2014. 14 years trained with St. Louis, and he kind of fell off the map. But um, Clevenger probably. If you, if you were to take one guy to be on your team right now, you'd obviously take Clevenger, not Masterson, you know, all things being equal. But I gave Masterson the fourth spot just because of um, the volume. And he was like the Indians' only good pitcher aside from like half the season of Derek Lowe um, until Evaldo Jimenez came around in 2013 and uh, Scott Kasner had that good year. Yeah, I like that pick. I, uh, I would have put him on mine as well. Um, he deserves it. He, like you said, he was the guy, he was our guy. I remember when he got you know injured in 2013, was pretty bummed out. Um, you know, we eventually obviously had to go to Danny Salazar on the wildcard game. And, you know, we know what ended up happening in that, although it wasn't necessarily the pitching's fault in that as, as much as it was the offense, not being able to hit Alex Cobb at all. Um, but yeah, I, I like the Masterson, I like the Masterson pick. And I think, there's really not any other options there just based off of, you know, Masterson was with us long enough. You couldn't say that Casimir had a really nice year in 2013, you know, but those, those aren't guys that were with us for a long enough period of time or had enough success that you even want to add them on. So I, I like the list here. Yeah. Danny sales are at 10 wins. I considered adding him just because he did start that wildcard game and uh, Shane Bieber was hard to leave off the list, but in a year and a half, I just felt like, I uh, had to go with Masterson for the time accumulated. And, you know, if, if people had been here a year earlier and had like two and a half years, 
um, in like 500 innings pitched or 300 innings pitched instead of or 400 instead of 322. I might have gone with him, but yeah, I think Masterson was a good pick. Uh, Josh Tomlin was someone I regretted leaving off just because of how much he meant to this team over this decade. Because this necessarily wasn't just all numbers; it was just kind of the roles they played here. Uh, thought he was on there, but uh, guys who pitched for the Indians this decade: Roberto Hernandez, Mitch Talbot, Derek Lowe. Uh, TJ House, Jenmar Gomez, Jake Westbrook, obviously Ryan Merritt, uh, David Huff, Aaron Laffey, Chris Seddon, Justin Germano, Alex White, and Toru Murata. All pitch games this decade I, for the Indians. All started games. As you were saying that list, I was thinking about Toru Murata because I remember that. What was it against the Orioles? I, I remember they called him up uh, to pitch and he got shellacked, but <laughs> it was good for him. <laughs> yeah, three, three innings of major league career. Yeah, you know, hey, that's more than that's more than you you and I have. So I, I mean, that's a that's a hell of a job for him. Yeah, kudos. And somehow in twenty four innings, Ryan Merritt put up almost a full win too. That's pretty impressive. That is solid. Is he still in baseball or is he out of baseball now? I don't know. You'd like to think he was around somewhere, but um, Ryan Merritt's like one of those the Royals. Yeah, is it the Royals? That's kind of ironic. Yeah, I mean, he should be somewhere. I mean, I feel like that 2016 ALCS start should carry him for a few more years. Yeah, there's there's some uh, there's some there's some like uh, you know urban legend there for him. He was with uh, he was with the Rays the Rays last year. Yeah, it didn't last very long. I know he was down like around 85. He just couldn't get his arm healthy. That's a a shame. Uh, bullpen, maybe controversial to some. Uh, on some parts of this list. This was a harder one. Cody Allen's the franchise leader in saves, so I went with Cody Allen. Uh, Andrew Miller was probably the most talented reliever this decade, so I went with him at number two. Uh, Brian Shaw, who was the rock of the bullpen this decade, I went with number three. Joe Smith at four because he came back a second time, and uh, this was just kind of a F4 kind of base thing. And I, I tried to look at win probability added just because relievers do tend to rack that up if they pitch in the end of games. But then as I went down the list and I'm looking at guys who were up there, like Dan Otero was like top five this decade in win probability added. And I'm like, yeah, maybe that's not the best way to go to do this list. So I kind of left him off, but I had Vinny Pistano and then I had Chris Perez at number six and then Brad Hand at number seven. And I went with Chris Perez over like guys like Oliver Perez and Dan Otero who are right behind him and wins above replacement. Um, and actually Zach McAllister as a reliever had 2.2 wins above replacement. Um, I did not select him for the list, but that was like the only other guy on the list I could really think to add besides like Oliver Perez and maybe like Mark Zepchinski. Yeah, th- those, those are good names. I don't, I don't, you got the, you got the big ones. I mean, those are, those are the guys every, no, no, you know, arguments from my end on the list. Um, if you had put Dan Otero on the list though, we would have had a problem. Really? <laughs> yeah. He's not your guy, is he? Not my guy. I, I think everybody who knows me knows that he's not my guy. I mean, I seems like a, nothing against him personally. I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I was, I, I, I need, uh, I need Dan Otero to not, not be an in Indians bullpen this year. <laughs> I don't, I don't, he's definitely gone. Yeah, six this decade. Uh, win probability added two point nine three. Obviously, a far cry from Cody Allen at eleven and Andrew Miller at six. Chris Perez at a five point oh one win probability added this decade, but. Hard to believe that Vinny uh, Pistano pitched for the Indians this decade. That seemed like so long ago. Um, 
Rafael Perez actually was on the roster at one point this decade. Esmel Rogers is on there at .09 wins. Uh, Kyle Crockett kind of forgot about him. Carlos Carrasco was a reliever for a little bit, including this year, but also um, in 2014 before he came back to the rotation. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, Nick Hagedon, Justin Masterson as a reliever, Nick Goody, Frank Herman, uh, Chris Seddon again, Scott Atchison, Nick Whitgren, Jensen Lewis, Matt Albers, Tommy Hunter, and then Jeff Manship. That was a great one. Uh, yeah, Jeff Manship was uh, Nick Goody before Nick Goody was around. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah, well, I think Nick Goody was a little better than Jeff Manship, but I kind of see your point. They were, they kind of were in that role. Um, the fastball Boone, slider relievers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Boone Logan was around this decade. Rich Hill appeared for the Indians as a reliever this decade. That's pretty crazy. I remember him. I, what about Craig Breslow? Craig Breslow was on there. Yeah, Craig Breslow pitched four innings this decade uh, mm-hmm. for the Indians. So did uh, Percy Garner, a personal favorite of mine, uh, who did not really recover from a case of the Yips in the minors. Um, but a really good dude and a really good, uh, I think, high school quarterback in somewhere in Ohio, Dover. Uh, Java Chamberlain, Jeremy Ricardo pitched for the Indians in the relief, in relief this decade. Uh, Zach Putnam, Anthony Swarzak, who's still hanging around. Java Chamberlain. Brian Slocum. Brian Slocum. Did he pitch this decade? Let me keep going on the list here. Gavin Floyd this decade. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Todd. I don't know who Jeff Todd is, but he pitched for the Indians this decade. Congratulations. Uh, Giovanni Soto is still kicking around the uh, winter leagues. Um, obviously, there's Kevin Pilecki and Michael Martinez and Brandon Geyer and Brian Rayburnall pitching innings in relief. Um, gosh, did Brian Slocum pitch this decade? I don't know if he did. That might have been a he pretty- didn't. He didn't. He pitched in 08. That was the last time. I'm really bummed out about that. I wanted a Brian Slocum reference. This, we could go on this list because Fangraphs has like 108 guys. And I'm at like 90, and there's like Tom Gorzolani and Alexia Gondo and uh, Sean. Oh my gosh, Sean Markham's on this list. Mm, Sean Markham, Clay Rapata. I know he's a big Browns fan. That's all I know about him from Twitter. Uh, Jairo Asensio, Matt. Oh, Matt Belisle. That was not fun. That was a rough experiment. Justin Germano, Which, Sean Morimondo. Yeah. Chad Durbin? Chad Durbin, 68 innings this decade with the Indians. How did he pitch 68 innings? How bad was it? I don't know. I, 2013. He, he, it was bad because he was, he was the mop-up guy. When we, were down, when we were down a lot late in the game, you always could count on a nice Chad Durbin outing. Yeah, he was, he was one of my least favorite relievers. And that's funny because I feel like the bullpen wasn't that bad because you had um, Pistano, Perez, and Smith for a little bit there. They were like the bullpen mafia. Uh, Josh Outman, Mark Lowe, Kerry Wood this decade, actually one year of the decade. He pitched 20 innings in 2010. Thought that was going to be a great signing, and it was it was not a good signing. Uh, I was wrong there. Hector Ambries, uh, I don't know who that is. Uh, John Axford is at the bottom of the list in negative uh, 0.5 wins above replacement, <laughs> but a great uh, Oscar Award predictor. And this guy was my Dan Otero, um, was Dan Wheeler. When the Indians had Dan Wheeler, I remember thinking, like, every time he came to the game, I was like, oh, God, this game's the worst because Dan Wheeler pitched. And I can't remember who who it was. I think it was – I don't remember. Maybe it, maybe it was Dan O'Terrell that I thought was going to be the next Dan Wheeler. And 
maybe it was somebody else. But I, I remember Dan Wheeler pitching, and I'm like, God, I hate this guy. He's not a good pitcher. And had <laughs> an eight seven six ERA in twelve innings the one year he pitched here. But all right, so we just kind of covered in the last like half hour everybody who played for the Indians in the last decade and. Uh, the names who are on the all-decade list, I think, were obvious, and the names that uh, were at the bottom of the list were painful and fun to relive. That was that was a lot of fun uh, reliving some of those memories and and <laughs> you know of of my childhood and watching some of these these guys play. Um, you know, maybe next maybe the next decade I'll get more of the of the guys right on the list. But uh, no complaints from Ayanna who you got on there, and I'm looking forward to reading the article when it comes out on, on Indians Baseball Insider. Yeah, that'll be up tomorrow at some or Tuesday at some point whenever everyone's listening to this. Um, we've spent a lot of time here, so I'll probably get out of here. I was going to say what you were looking for going to the winter meetings, but I think that's kind of obvious. So, uh, everybody, if you made it this far, I hope you all enjoyed the guessing game at the end and listening to stories about Dan Wheeler and Chris Dickerson. Uh, personal <laughs> fun for us over here, but maybe not as fun for everybody else. But if you're driving somewhere for Thanksgiving, hopefully it got you through your drive. Uh, so before we get out of here, uh, Michael, anything you're, uh, you want to say you're, you're thankful for or looking forward to uh, during the holiday week? I'm thankful that uh, – I'm looking forward to, at least in, this, in the same way that uh, we're going to have the winter meetings coming up. I, even though it hasn't been as active, I always enjoy keeping MLB Network on TV 24-7 just to see what's going on. Um, you know, I'm thankful that um, we still have – you know, the team that we have going into next year, we're going to be competitive. We have a, 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 we're still within our window of contention. Anybody who asks me when the tribe are going to be, you know, back to where they were at the beginning of the decade, I, I think there's plenty of time. Um, you know, we, we've had accumulated enough talent that we're going to be solid for, for many years to come. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to, to 2020 spring training is, you know, creeping up on us. I know we're still about three months away, but the baseball offseason never feels uh, once you get to February, it's like, oh, like, wow, that went actually pretty fast. Um, and then, you know, it's just the countdown until the season starts. But uh, for me, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, what what are you thankful for, Justin? Definitely thankful for uh, – we'll be able to do the last two podcasts. This has been really fun, um, just getting off-season topics out there. And anybody who's listening, I know there was like uh, 40 or 50 people who listened to the last podcast. And – you know, for that being our first and being a winner one, I'm, I'm really thankful for those who listened and uh, stuck with us. You know, we switched uh, recording formats and uh, tried to get it distributed everywhere. It was kind of a pain for a little bit, but I think we're on the right track now. So uh, thanks for bearing through that. And everybody who reads IBI and, um, you know, these are the slow months of the year for us. We try to keep as much content out there as we can for both uh, regular readers and subscribers, you know, all the, um, Minor league awards have been VIP only, but uh, tomorrow's or today's when you're listening to this, uh, all decade team is free for everybody to read. And, uh, you know, thanks for everybody who reads, whether it's, like I said, subscribers or uh, even casual readers. And I hope that uh, looking forward to some new staff members coming aboard in the next few months and bringing along new content for everyone to check out. And uh, thankful, hopefully, we'll, the teams will give us something to talk about uh, two weeks when the winter meetings happens, we'll do another podcast. So, uh, yeah, I don't anticipate doing one next week. Um, thanks for, you know, being available to do one tonight so we can get one out during Thanksgiving week. Appreciate that. 
Yeah, no problem. I, I'm I'm glad that you you had me back on again. It's it's always fun to talk baseball. I I you know love the topics that we had today, um, and I'm looking forward to hopefully putting one together in a couple of weeks, and and maybe there'll be some news uh, to talk about. Maybe the Indians making a move or any type of trade speculation, and you know we'll see what happens with Rendon and some of the big free agents. Uh, interested to keep uh, in mind, see what the Twins and Sox do to fortify their pitching rotations, and also. Uh, to see if Whit Merrifield uh, or potentially Mitch Haniger, you know, controllable uh, assets on on bet, you know, bad teams if they get moved uh, at all during these during this winter. But we'll be fun to to keep tabs on that. But yeah, thanks again, Justin. Appreciate it, and uh, looking forward to uh, talking again in a couple weeks. And you know, hopefully, everyone listening to this and you as well have a great Thanksgiving um, this coming Thursday. Yeah, thanks for everybody who uh, stuck with us for the hour and a half and. Uh... Hope everybody enjoys their Thanksgiving, safe travels if you're traveling anywhere far, and uh, don't do anything stupid like hit anybody in a line on Black Friday if you're out shopping. Uh, try, <laughs> to stay, you know, try to stay awake and not getting into fights and whatever happens on Black Friday. I don't go Black Friday shopping anymore, so but I, I enjoy the news just because people make themselves look stupid. But uh, don't do that if you're listening to this podcast, so you can keep listening to the podcast and then not get arrested on Black Friday. Uh, <laughs> that's about enough out of us. Uh, Michael, I'm Justin. Thanks for tuning in, and we will catch you again in about two weeks uh, after the winter meetings. Thanks. 